With Virgin Media, you can build up the entertainment and tear down the price. Switch to Virgin Media today and get super-fast broadband and TV for just €49 a month for an awesome 12 months. The sale that stacks up. Now on. See virginmedia.ie and check out how our mobile sales stacks up too. T's and C's apply. See virginmedia.ie. 12-month contract. Offer ends 27th of February 2019. Just Dan here today, a little bit of a change-up. I know you guys are used to me going away, but this time Frank has gone away, and I am filling in for him and for me. Uh, I guess that's not really a thing, but that's what I'm doing. Today, coming up on the show, uh, I've decided that we're going to just play some of the uh, some of the interviews that we've done on this fine program. Uh, we've done quite a few, turns out, uh, close to 20 uh, and I just want to play some of the ones that are my favorites and see what you guys think. Hopefully they were your favorites, too, or maybe you haven't listened back that far and you've never heard some of these things. That's the hope, anyway. All of them are worth listening to. I won't be doing any of the uh, standard sort of, you know, I'm not going to be doing emails and I'm not going to be doing any, uh, what do you call it, stories. You know, the things that we normally do on the show. Those aren't going to be happening, um, but we will be back with a, a normal, regular, everyday type of show next week. I'm going to jump in with these uh, interviews. The first one is from uh, Peter Bogosian, who was the author of uh, A Manual for Creating Atheists, a book which Frank and I had discussed uh, either the podcast before that week or a couple weeks before that, and we'd gotten a whole bunch of pushback from you guys, probably appropriately so. Um, we hadn't read the book. We uh, we were just reporting on something that, you know, on an article that we had seen about the book, and uh, we we just sort of talked about it. Uh, and then, uh, we you know, with from all the pushback, we decided, hey, you know what, let's, uh, let's actually read the book. Let's talk to the guy so we got pete bogosian on the show and uh this is the result enjoy so here we are we have pete bogosian 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 sorry pete we uh he he explained to us earlier listeners that it rhymes with explosion <laughs> but we still got it wrong we, we, i still got it wrong dan got it wrong <laughs> anyway thanks for coming on the show pete a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, this is great. So, uh, you know, we were just uh, mentioning to you that we uh, we got in some trouble when we yeah. when we talked about your book on our show. Not because we talked about your book in a way that we knew anything about it. No, because we I thought I was pretty clear about that. <laughs> we, we, we had not read it at that time, but yeah, we talked about it uh, and uh, and about the concept of sort of evangelizing atheism. And, uh, and, and which, yeah, which well, is what we thought it was really bringing up and that's where we ran with it. So sure. So, uh, so, like, so we got so you, taken so you guys, to task. You guys, so people took you to task, but you have actually read the book now. We have, yeah, we have, yeah, we have oh, indeed. God. 
every time someone says that, I just have to pause for a moment and suck that. I mean, that gives me such joy. I can't tell you how many. I would say it's about 5% of the interviews I have, people have actually read the book. Really? You're kidding me. Well, outside of atheist circles. In fact, oh, sure. actually, let me revise that. I think zero, zero. I mean, clearly that other Canadian one shouldn't look, even look at the book. But, um, right, right. <laughs> well, but you, you guys have read the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, you know, they've read the title. What more than what more do they that's, need, right? That's that's a good point. That you, <laughs> don't judge a book by. Oh yeah, wait. Uh, oh, so yeah. <laughs> so tell me, you read the book and just give it to me straight. What do you think? No no BS. Bottom line. Well, you know what? We will give it to you straight. But what I'd like to to have you do is just sort of explain to our listeners what from in your words what the book's about, what you were trying to achieve with it. Will you? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, the book is about helping people to align their beliefs with reality, to, to engage in public policy in a way that they sit at the adult table. <laughs> to uh, yeah, yeah, you did read the book. To, um, to shed delusions, to value reason and rationality and the public understanding of science. Okay. To give them the tools to differentiate what's real from what's not real and to to use those tools to make a better life and to help their communities you use the term street epistemologist a lot yep yep so what is that so epistem- there's only two dollar there are two two dollar words in the book one of them is epistemology just how you know how you know things it's a I, I didn't put it in there to show everybody how smart I was. It's just the perfect word for what it is. And so I, I used it because it was the most appropriate word. It basically, bottom line, means how people know what they know. And uh, a street epistemologist is somebody who, just by talking to people, liberates them of delusion. Okay. Hmm. And this yeah. is – and, and uh, your book claims to uh, – you, you, you want to create a, a virtual army – of, of epistemologists out there is that would you say that that's fair uh well yeah it is but it but it's that's it's way beyond that i mean it's just <laughs> way way beyond that i mean i would like to give the tools to every single person on planet earth even the people who don't want to use the tools because uh, <laughs> and and I, and I you know if someone's infected a loved one a friend someone's infected by the faith virus or someone comes up to you and start talking about whatever superstition or nonsense there is it will give people a plan a template a strategy to help those people shed those delusions sure mm-hmm. sure well dan i think this is a good jumping off point for pete's question and because we had sort of differing responses okay. to, to the book. That's true. We did. So, uh, I mean, should we get into that just a little bit? Dive in, man. Well, I mean, first of all, do you want to maybe talk about your response? Because yours is a well, little bit. Okay. So, so my my initial response. Here's the thing, uh, Pete. When we were talk when we were talking on our show about the concept of going out and sort of and and and, and proselytizing for atheism. Yeah, that's not exactly what it is. But now that you've read the book, you know that's not right, what it is. Indeed, indeed. But what we were talking about was the fact that, to our minds, it's just as annoying when we do it as it is when they do it. So that was kind of our jumping off point. Now, as you say, that's not what your book is about. Your book is about sort of teaching people ways of knowing, effective means of knowing things. And, and what is an effective methodology of knowing something and what is not. And faith, as you say, is not. And I, what I really appreciated was that you advise, you counsel people against 
trying to talk about uh, trying to trying to attack someone's religion, trying mm-hmm. to attack the attack the the tenets of their belief. You you counsel people against going to that place. You know you don't you, yeah. you don't want to attack Jesus. You don't want to attack the Bible. You don't want to attack any of those things. You, it's just about going after the way they know things. And I thought that that was brilliant and spot on. I guess where I diverge from you. Yeah, I'm loving the butt. I just I'm excited. You're making me a little nervous, but we're let yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're we're in good shape. We're in totally good shape. We're we're on safe footing here because I really did like. Uh, your your methodologies and everything. My my question is, and I guess this is my question for you. Um, you use words like uh, intervention and uh, treatment of people, and you say th- phrases like uh, "in your practice mm-hmm. of this ep- epistemology." These are these yeah. are therapeutic words. These are words yes. that, that 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 are used in therapy. And I guess my one of my concerns is. That you're sending people out into the world and you say, you know, you you ask people to make street epistemology their default communicative interaction. That's a quote from your book. I just wonder, are, are you sending people out to do essentially a therapy that they're probably not quali- qualified to do? And I say this because you're fucking smart dude and uh that much is absolutely clear reading your book you're you're one of those powerhouse brains well not all of us are geniuses like you and not all of us have the background in you know kantian thinking or 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 you know whatever else so so is there a danger that, that you're sending people out to do something that they're really not prepared to do was that your principal objection i don't know that it was my principal objection but it was one of the things that worried me Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so maybe this is a weird thing to say. I'll answer your question directly after I say this. I, uh, I don't think that I'm a particularly smart guy, (laughs) but no, I'm, I'm being really sincere when I tell you, here's what I think. I think that I've worked really, really, really hard. Mm. And I think I've worked so hard for so long. I mean, that's why I'm chronically exhausted and I'm actually, frankly, worried about my health. I have worked so long for so hard that it's made up for any, any intellectual deficiencies that I've had. So <laughs> people perceive that, people perceive me as, as uh, having much more intellectual light bulb power than I actually have. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll couple that with one more thing. I think, um, and, and I don't mean this out of arrogance. I mean that this factually, I think I'm an incredibly sincere person. And I think the combination of hard work and sincerity and being honest with yourself will take you places that just raw intelligence won't take you. It will give you a type of life and a type of examination of your life and a type of honesty with yourself that you just can't get in the genetic lottery. Mm. Well, I, yeah. I definitely don't disagree with you on that point, but... I, I, I would have to say that still, and I, th- this is coming from a guy who does a weekly podcast devoted so in, in part to, this, to, to these kinds of thoughts. Yeah. I still don't have the time to devote to all of this stuff that it seems like it would be necessary to become a really effective. Okay, so uh, back to your question, in other words. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, cool, cool. Uh, so I, I did, I did just, I just want to say that. So, so no, I don't. Here's, here's why. I think the part of it is when you engage people in these interactions, 
the thing that I mentioned over and over in the book is that you have to be willing to revise your beliefs. Mm. And so if someone knows something you don't know, then you have to say you don't know and either mm -hmm. admit on the spot if their reasoning is good or say, hey, look, you know, I really don't know. I'll, I'll get back to you on that and let me think about it. So that's the first thing. Right. The second thing is it is a fact and we can talk about what a fact means or we can talk about what I mean by by this but people's cognitions have been damaged in very severe ways we can have a discussion about whether that's a cognitive illness we can have a discussion about whether that's a mental disorder we can have a discussion about and I don't think it's mere semantics I think the words are important in this context but we can have a discussion about what happened to people but the fact of the matter is that we have people whose cognitions are so severely damaged that they have come to radical conclusions about the world and i guess in a sense that's bad for a number of reasons and this dovetails back into your question you know i mean it's bad because they vote in a democracy because there are politicians make laws that hurt people and and uh, and hurt communities look at just look at the gay community you know sure. or, um so 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 the is the question then that i'm asking to do people things that they're not qualified for i don't think that's the case at all i don't think that by asking people questions that helps both the people and themselves to lead a more thoughtful and examined life, I don't think that can ever be a bad thing. I think the call for civility and discourse is vital. Mm. I think that for too long, you know, this angry atheist meme or narrative has been out there. And I think we need to change the way that we interact. Mm. And part of that change is, is uh, you know, it, it, it's not just a, um, um, it, it's, it's hard. Well, I mean, you've read the book, but but it's 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 a bluntness, it's a sincerity, it's an honesty with respect to the other person sure. and respect to ourselves. And I'm also talking about engaging ideas that people have very very dangerous ideas in some cases. Right. And so the only way that we're going to do this, it's not a question of being unqualified or qualified. I mean, th th these are not. Um, you know, you're not talking about someone who wants to kill themselves. You're talking about someone who has an epistemological problem. So, some way, their way of knowing is taking their beliefs out of alignment with reality. Mm. Either that, <laughs> or, or I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right now, that's Fair always enough. possible. And if and if I'm wrong, then when I talk to somebody, then I have to acknowledge. To, I have to be sincere in those conversations, right. and I have to say, look, you know, wow, that's that's really interesting. You, you know, so, sure. someone asked me, what would you do if this caused the emergence of a million Muslims? Right. <laughs> and I thought that was an awesome question. And I said, that would be the best thing ever. Because if there's reason to believe in Islam, if I have evidence for it, then sign me up. I'm ready to go. Right. Right. So I don't think it's – I think the call for civility, the call for thoughtfulness, the call for people to – people who have pretty severe epistemological damage these people can be helped and one way to help them is through these micro personal inter interventions mm, yeah well i definitely i mean that's the that's the shit that really resonated with me yeah. and 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 the fact that you call for sort of a, an end to the debate uh to to the uh to you know to actually 
going out there and challenging people, you know, I'm going to win on points. Well, you're not going to win anything. You're just going to frustrate everybody involved. <laughs> yeah. I do wonder, though, I mean, has this ever backfired for you? Because I, 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 I know that I've dealt with, like, people like my father-in-law who – Frank and I both have Mormon backgrounds, and my father-in-law hey, – can I, can I pause you for one sec? Is sure. that cool? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, you said something really interesting about winning, and, and I think that's right, and I write about that in the book. But if you have to look at those interactions like that, I mean, if, if it's just impossible for you to adopt some of the strategies – then let me tell you what a win is. A win is like I talk in the book about what Socrates says in the Gorgias, that it's better to be refuted than it is to refute because then you learn something. Right, yeah. So a, so a win in those conversations is that you engage somebody who has a more reliable epistemology, who knows something that you don't know, and consequently you, you discard a bad way of knowing and you adopt a good way of knowing yeah. right and so if you have to think about it that way then you can think about a quote-unquote loss as your own personal gain it's a phenomenal win because yeah. it brought you closer to reality yeah i agree with you i love it yeah frank did you have uh did you have some well, stuff you I, wanted to i don't know i, I, like... I interrupted you though you're talking about <laughs> yeah that, but I, I was actually interested in that but, but i have no. the uh i have the adhd so i don't know what i was saying at that point so <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Uh, no, actually, what, what's sort of been rattling around in my head, um, listening to all of this, is just, you know, the the objection, or not objection, your worry, Dan. I I've been having some difficulty, just honest, honestly speaking, kind of wrapping my head around your worry, right? Because like my my experience, Pete, is that I I served a two year LDS mission, yeah. and and. That was the moment in my life when the doubts were planted, and it was planted by the people I was talking to. I was out there supposedly trying to convert exactly. people, but exactly. instead people had these amazing responses to what I had to say, yeah. which was a script. You know, <laughs> what I was saying, I didn't really even believe. Right. But people would come back yeah. with me with these amazing responses and would challenge me in, in ways that I I still remember these conversations, you know, almost 20 years on now. Sure. And and so it's like I really saw something in in this process, Pete, that I could really identify with because I was on the receiving end of it, you know, yeah. like and and I and so I'm glad that those people were willing to 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 stand up and to just challenge my point of view sure. and challenge my worldview. Well, OK, so now I remember where I was going before okay. uh, and, and you brought me back to it, Frank, and, and that was Pete that uh the, I, you know, I've had interactions where I tried to discuss religion and I tried to do it respectfully. I mean, if you've listened to our show, then you would know that we, we are not angry atheists. We, we get taken to task sometimes because we're not angry enough. We just sit and giggle for we an just, hour. We just hour. have a fun time. It's just, yeah. So, I mean, if, if people have uh, a problem with our show, that tends to be it. But I think, uh, oh, and the fact that we're willing to take other atheists to task is is a complaint people have. <laughs> That's an odd complaint, but okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, well, I mean, God, you should see the response that we got when we when we came down, and we didn't come down on you personally. I, mm -mm. We came down on on the idea of of evangelical atheism, and people jumped in and said, "You can't touch Bogosian." Bogosian, Bogosian is ours. You can't touch him. <laughs> I, you know, I should probably follow the. I don't really read any blogs. Actually, I don't. I don't. I should probably read that. I. I. Uh, well, I, I find that 
You're not pulling my chain, are you? No, man. You're you're like a holy cow out there. Oh, come on, People, man. They love you. The love is just pouring in. And one guy threatened to, to never listen to our show again. I shit you not. <laughs> I shit you not. <laughs> so, so there you go. But what? Well, let me advise uh, listeners listeners against it. Look, look. As long as you didn't target me personally or my family, you you can target my ideas all day long. In fact, uh, I I'm. I, I insist that you do. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Why are you not on our show more? We need you on our show all the time. This is good. Anyway, <laughs> what I was getting to is, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about, uh, I've tried to talk respectfully about my atheism and, and, and about ideas surrounding that with, for instance, my father-in-law, my sister-in-law. Like, these are, these are hardcore Mormons, and I've tried to have good, respectful conversations with them, and it's ended up biting me in the ass. Cause these, so where, you know, where, where, where do you live? Salt Lake. We're, but we're in Salt Lake City, so, I mean, we're in, we're in Mormon Central here. Can I throw you a curveball? Sure. So how about this? Uh, if I do a book tour... You have me over for dinner with your family. Don't tell them. Just say, hey, I'm going to have a guy over, and I'll deconvert your whole family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. My, my initial, here's, I have two responses to that. And the first one is I would pay you my life savings <laughs> if you achieved it. <laughs> and the second response is I can't risk the fallout that would come Aww. if you didn't. Do it, Dan. Do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, so I'll, I'll, I'll throw out something. So I'm, but I'm if put, you come I'm to Salt Lake, we, we'll work something out. I'll All figure right, it well, out. Just uh, I ask only one thing. I ask actually two things. Okay. Low carbohydrates. Okay. We can handle that. You can handle that. No pastas, potatoes, lots of meats and vegetables. Sure, sure. <laughs> and you pay it forward. Indeed. Indeed. You help, you help other people. Well, well I, you know, I, I got to tell you, you know, while I will refuse ever to engage in a debate over religion ever again yeah, with, 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 a, with a religious person, you, what you prescribe in this book is something that I could I could jump on board with. It's something that Have I'd you be tried it yet? Do. You guys tried it yet? No. It's still, for me, it's still kind of sinking in. I'm still kind of, I want to explore a lot of your, um, your suggested reading. Yeah. yeah. You know, like a really, I, but I, I, the other thing is that all of our friends are atheists already. So it's just, yeah, who it's are we going to go to? Maybe. Yeah. We, we, we haven't yet mustered up the courage to just encounter someone at a fast food restaurant. <laughs> yet okay well, well, yeah well you can always wait until they come to you or friends of friends are good too if you want to it's, try or... it's true it's true and yeah. and i'm sure that that it'll come up but you know we just we just barely got your book you know last couple of weeks so well it's... you read it so that's awesome so there we are we're, we it's a starting point right yeah cool, cool. um <laughs> so yeah I, uh i'm sorry go ahead i did kind of want to ask you a, a couple of things um i have it on my kindle um, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Um, well, one of the you, you talk about treating oh. faith as a public health crisis at one yeah. point. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because that seems it, that to me does seem maybe a little extreme. But like at the same time, I'd, I'd really like to hear your thoughts a little bit, and I think our listeners would too. So, so uh, to make it crystal clear, the idea of faith as a virus is absolutely not my idea. It's it's been in the literature. It has a pretty extensive pedigree. Um, my thoughts have been informed by Brody, by Daryl Ray, by Dawkins, 
um, by by others, and, and actually my wife's a physician, and uh, just by when I when I go to these conferences, um, I always like to to listen and, and uh, see how much I don't know. But uh, some way, of that. So go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. By the way, if, if, are you coming to the American Atheist Conference in Salt Lake in in April? Oh, I don't know. Uh, no, nobody invited me, so. Uh, well, uh, I don't know. Maybe I, I guess not. I don't know. Uh, if you want to show up, let us know. We'll 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 find a place for you to stay or whatever. Oh, okay. I'm staying at your house. I'm deconverting your whole family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sounds great. Sorry. Go on with what yeah. you're saying. No, no. So I mean, that's not my idea, but it, it is. And and uh, to really get a, a look at this, you should really read the work of Delroy. He lays it out much better than I do. But mm-hmm. it really does travel, and it really is transmitted like a virus, and it does something. And I'm not a cognitive neuroscientist, and as you guys know, I don't pretend to know things that I don't know. <laughs> I, it, it does something to the wiring. It, it, it wires the brain in some way, but it is creepy in its relationship to viral epidemics. It's creepy uh, um, epidemiologically how this um, – Trying to think of something else, another um, word for the faith for us, but it, it just the faith. It really is a vi- It really is like a virus of the mind. I mean, it really, truly is. It has the same categories. So I think I wrote that in there because I think we need to conceptualize this as an epidemiological problem as well. Well, maybe you can also elucidate for us because I agree with you that it it hinders a person's uh, a cognitive. Uh, progress, their their ability to, you know, I, I I feel like I've seen it, that that the way faith can 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 slow or or uh, or, what's the word I'm looking for? That's not retard because that sounds wrong, but some the, but that can slow a person's uh, ability to to process things well. Yeah. But my yeah. question is, what do you see as the is the actual danger of that? I mean, I granted we've got a bunch of you know people running around who aren't as good at cognate cog, cognating at cognition, but is that that big a deal? Wow, that's a uh, I'm a little taken aback by that question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, a species threatening event. That's what a big deal it is. I mean, so so look at it. But this we're still way. here, right? In, yeah. In what way? Because <laughs> people have been pretty religious for a really long right. time. And, and we're so still... as so as Sam Harris and others have said over and over again, you you combine apocalyptic weapons now now we have i don't know if you know kurzweil's work and um so 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 now we have we're we're combining virulent dangerous epistemologies faith-based epistemologies with an ability to kill people on a scale never before seen okay but but that really wasn't where i was going with that so i mean you, you you could think of that as a danger to children i mean just really like Let's forget the fact that we're on a podcast. Let's just sit and for a second and think. Let's just think of the damage, of the emotional damage that it does to a child to tell them unless they believe something on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, they are going to burn in hell for eternity. They're going to be separated from their families. Yeah. They're going to burn in hell. That is grotesque that is monstrous that is the most grotesque form of abuse that one can think of i well i don't know i think hitting is actually probably well, as grotesque as that i mean I, I i don't mean to be flipped but the thing is that i lived through that i grew up being told that and being yeah. told a whole bunch of other bullshit 
And but there's I, a difference. There's a difference. And the difference is, there are many differences, but the a pr a primary difference, a chief difference is that it's sanctioned by society. Sure. And people think that you're a good... Nobody thinks that someone who hits a child is good. Right. But people who think that they that if they tell their children they're going to burn in hell if they don't hold certain sets of beliefs, they're looked at as virtuous, decent, good, upstanding people. Well, I don't disagree with you on that point for sure. That's definitely a, so, a, a so, problem. Yeah, so we have these social structures. We have these structures of reinforcement mm -hmm. that keep people locked in, and that's what I wrote in the book, this idea, again, not my idea, uh, that faith is a virtue. And oh, yeah. so... So that's a problem. I mean, it's so it's a, it's a problem. I mean, look, I mean, this whole idea of like Rick Perry praying for rain, and I mean, and I'm not even talking about the most extreme things. I'm I'm doing so. I'm doing a, um, a t when is this episode going to be released? Uh, Friday evening. This Friday. Yeah. So I'm doing a uh, a uh, TV show called The Reason Whisperer, and uh, I I'm going to take people as they walk out of you know churches and mosques and synagogues and i'm just going to deconvert them on the spot <laughs> that's and, amazing you know, yeah i already yeah it's going to be it's dude I'm, the footage is insane it's crazy that we got i went to a mega church here and uh, uh you know had amazing conversations like really genuine sincere conversations with people um where but, where, where can we see this well, we're going to put together a trailer, and we're going to see. We're thinking of doing a Kickstarter. We know a few producers. We think we're going to send it to them. So I'm not really sure what we're going to do with it. And the, each we're going to have follow-ups, right? So awesome. we do on-scene follow-ups, so I explain it, and then we look at the footage, and I go over step by step by step the process that I use to. And that's the other big word in the book: uh, belief openness, dox, doxastic openness. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. But but my but back to the the original point is that I think that this is incredibly dangerous and incredibly hurtful to people, and I think that it's leading us away from making better decisions. Hmm. Uh, I think. And, that, and I, yeah, I'm sorry. I no, I think I think you're probably right about that. By the way, you mentioned Daryl Ray several times, and I did want to mention that he uh, he told me that I had to tell you hello. So oh, very cool. I, 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 I let him know that you were coming on the show, and he uh, he said he said to say hi. Anyway, um, <clears throat> sorry. I, I think I did. I just interrupt you to say that. No, I wasn't. You know, we're just we're just three guys hanging out talking. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what we were hoping for. Yeah, don't worry about interruptions. It's all good. <laughs> well, we. Uh, I I have to say, I I really do recommend. <clears throat> excuse me. I recommend to all of our listeners that they go out and buy your book. Uh, I think that I think that there's a lot of really good stuff in it. Yeah, uh, and and I think that your what you discuss, uh, and 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 I think you're right. There's a sincerity to it, and there's an honesty in in what you're trying to get to, that I think is is worth reading and worth looking at. And and I and I appreciate you putting it out there. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm I'm glad that you guys liked it. Um, it's not enough to like it though. Right? <laughs> no, I mean it really it really isn't. It's it's not enough to like it. It's you got to help people, right? So you, you you have people who are suffering from delusions, and we need to help them. And you don't have to go out into the streets or whatever. But, you know, if, if you have an opportunity to ask people about why they believe what they believe, then I think it's, a, it's, I think it's incumbent upon you to do so. Hmm. 
especially you guys. I mean, you have a podcast. Right. I mean, the, the, the possibility for you guys to sit, you, you, I mean, you are situated in such a way that you guys really can help people. You know, you look, come back, you, you try this out, or you invite me six months down the line or whatever, and we can have, do you, do you do call-ins? We'll have people call in. We'll talk about your interventions. We'll talk about your interventions. And, uh, you know, maybe you think it works, it doesn't work, when you think it doesn't help make you, you know, we'll just have a, we'll have a sincere discussion about that. Um, I'd, lo I'd love that. Yeah. yeah. So, so again, it's not enough that, that we buy the book. DJ Grotti talks about it all the time. It, it's about, it's about an ethic of caring. I mean, it's about helping people because mm -hmm. people think, I mean, we, you know, when you talk to these people, I'm always struck by how sincere they are by like what decent, good people they are. Right. And they really want to do the right thing. They really want to believe the right thing. And they think that they're believing the right things and they're not. And they're really damaging themselves. And unless, you know, I, I can't, I'm one guy. I can't do this alone. <laughs> but you guys can help, right? Well, that's, you why, that's why you're on here, man. You can motivate listeners to help. And we need to change the cultural dynamic which currently is we don't talk about faith or if someone throws the faith card the conversation's over like that's it right and or, we need to change that dynamic or the dynamic is someone throws out the faith faith card and then all of the atheists scream and shout at them yeah and yeah. And, and tell them that they're stupid and tell them that obviously everything that they believe is wrong and a whole bunch of stuff that i think uh i think is largely unhelpful because as you point out in your book it sends them back into sort of retrenching into their position exactly. again. Yeah. Exactly. It makes their epistemic situation worse. Right. It makes their hmm. and so we we need to we need to call it we need to change the way that we deal with people who are infected by the faith virus. We need to look at them as infectees. Hmm. We need to look at them as people who have cognitions that are damaged and we need to try to help them. But we also at the same point need to say hey, maybe our own cognitions are damaged mm -hmm. am i am i willing to revise my belief is there something that i have and that's an insidious thing about a lot of faith right an insidious thing is that people think it's a virtue to hold to or to stick to or to not revise their beliefs right and that yeah that was another point of the book that i thought was very was very salient was was the notion that uh that we as a society need to need to uh, make it make it a virtue to to be willing to say I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's good stuff. Well, Pete Bogosian, thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, we may take you up on that offer to have you back on in in, in a few months if you don't mind. Oh yeah, and uh, so I don't know if I'm going to Utah. I haven't, I haven't been invited, but if I do a book signing or something. Uh, Hey, man, uh, stay in touch. Get out here. Yeah, all good, all good. Uh, hey, thanks a lot, guys, for having me on. I, I appreciate it. And, uh, and if, we make it up, we've, if we make it up to Portland, we'll buy you a beer. Man, if you make it up to Portland, I'll buy you 10 beers. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Sounds all great. Right. Awesome. Thanks, all Pete. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, well, we really enjoyed talking to that Pete Bogosian. He's a, a sweetheart. And uh, coming up next is another real peach of a fella. That's uh, Daryl Ray. He's a guy that we've had a few interactions with and has always just been an absolute delight. Uh, if you, you will never meet someone who has more interesting things to say about the penises of ducks and apes. But that's beside the point. Uh, here's our interview with him. 
So welcome, Dr. Ray. Yeah, great to have you here. Glad to be here, guys. This is going to be fun. Thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's it's quite a treat. I, I, you know, it's funny. I was first made aware of you um, by another podcast that I was listening to. And I just, I just thought, you know what? That's uh, you were talking about your new book, which we're going to talk about today. Um, and it, it was, it was. I just loved it. It was, it was something that it was a voice that I hadn't heard yet. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate you coming out and chatting with us. Good. Well, I'm, I don't get to do face-to-face podcasts too often, so this is kind of fun to actually see the people I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so uh, the book is titled. Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. Yeah. And that seems pretty appropriate. Yeah. And sure does among Mormons, I, doesn't I, it? Yeah, well, I know it distorted mine. <laughs> I, well, I mean, oh. absolutely. <laughs> it's just one of those things where when you grow up religious, I mean, I, I don't think anyone who's honest with themselves who grew up religious doesn't understand that truth yeah that somehow there is a distortion that will happen uh just any religion it doesn't even matter what religion but especially with mormonism it's just one of those things that you're just you're going to have a weird sexuality but if the irony that is if you look just at the literature nobody's written about that before right nobody's talking out loud about how religion screws people's sex lives up I mean, and you got Christian counselors out there all over the place right. counseling people on their sexual. No, wait a minute. How do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> one, one of my favorite things is that when you're Christian, when you're Mormon, when, and you, you have a sexual problem, you're supposed to go to your priest? Yeah, right. You're supposed to go to your bishop? What the hell? Yeah. Like, the, how is that person remotely qualified to help you with sex problems? Right. Somebody who's been told not to touch themselves since they were 12 <laughs> years old, and now they're going to go get. Right. Uh huh. So, so what, what has been your, uh, well, first of all, what's been the response to the book? Has, has it been awesome. well received? Uh, oh, absolutely. Get, getting just review. It's, it's one of the top, ba- top reviewed atheist books right now. Oh, I mean, great. yeah, it's, of course it's still young. It's only been out about six months, the book, but yeah, it's getting just super reviews. And although we did get a one-star review from somebody on Amazon the other day who hadn't read it, but they're a fundamentalist and they know this can't be right. <laughs> Of I actually make. I actually transfer. I think that should be a five star review. Yeah. Well, no. I I think you should take that as a compliment. I do. I, mean, I the, take the it second the uh, the Christian trolls start taking yeah. notice of you, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it, it is. So one of the things that interested us uh, about about your research and about your book was that we noticed that uh, Mormonism. Uh, play some play some key roles. Plays a pretty prominent role in your uh, in your research. Is that or or at least stands out? Right. Yeah. So uh, so talk to us about that. Well, that was unexpected. Uh, we did this research last year, and uh, we questioned fourteen thousand five hundred sixty people online through the help of people like Greta Christina and PZ Myers. They got they got the word out for us or helped us, and uh, we just crunched the numbers, got the data back. Um, we had no clue what was going to come out of the data. I mean. That's why you do research. And one of the key questions we asked was about guilt and how much guilt were you taught as a child around sexuality. And lo and behold, I would have guessed Catholics were number one in guilt around sexuality. Sure. But that wasn't the case. (laughs) Mormons were number one. (laughs) You take the prize. But right behind them were Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Pentecostals. All four of them are right there at the top. Everybody else, including Catholics, are stepped down. Now, they're still high, but they're a step down. So that shows those top four are cults. 
I mean, there's no yeah. doubt. If you look at the data, Mormonism, Pentecostal, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're all cults. Well, and they behave like cults around sexuality, for sure. Yeah, and also very new. New cults, like, right. Yeah. Mm, like yeah, less than— Very young— Less than 150 years old in yeah. most cases. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's what most cults are. I mean, the, a cult right. that moves into a religion is no longer a cult. And sure. After two or 300 years, you become a religion, not a cult, I guess. <laughs> I was also surprised to see the Judaism, which I've always associated with, uh, at very least— you know, you get that sort of that stereotype of, of of the Jewish mother shaming or guilting her her kid for not calling or whatever. I thought that there would be there would be at least something, but they they ranked really low, didn't they? Well, I think that's a product number one that we didn't get a lot of Jews, so oh. it wasn't a, a big sample. And number two, that we got a lot of secular Jews or Jews that were raised in secular homes. Hmm. We didn't get any Orthodox former Orthodox Jews. Oh, yeah. okay. So I think uh, also Judaism actually is more guilty about. Other other things than it is around sexuality. There's there's a pretty strong positive sex positive tradition. Sex I say sex positive in very limited terms, but within marriage you can do about anything, or you know you're you're allowed to do a lot more than most religions in mm. Judaism. So yeah, that's that's probably why Judaism scored so low. Okay, yeah, on guilt. Interesting. But they said, we only ask about sexual guilt. We didn't ask about other kinds of sure, mother, right. mother-in-law <laughs> guilt and <Okay>. things. <laughs> Well, so one of the things that you uh, that you guys that you discuss in your book is uh, that I found fascinating is the concept because it's not just um, sexuality that religions trying trying using to control. It's there's there's a whole mythology around uh, what happens when you die and your death. And you, you make a link between death and sexuality in terms of religion, don't you? Yeah, right. Yeah, I call it death neurosis. Okay. You know, a, a neurosis, when, when you're neurotic about something, you have an unnatural fear of it or an unnatural set of behaviors around that. So if in, in what religion does is it teaches you I mean, it's natural for us to be afraid of death. I mean, who wants to die? No, very few people want to die. So... Um, what religion does is take that fear and then exaggerate it and blow it up. If you if you believe, yeah, when I die, I'm going to be worm food, I'm dust, and that's what it is, period, then you don't really have much to fear. I, I fear dying more than death. I mean, what's there to fear of death? It's right. like Mark Twain said, I was, uh, I was dead for billions of years before I was born. I will be dead billions of years after I'm born. Right. So, and that's kind of the way I look at it. Spend the most, most of your existence being dead. It's yeah. just this little blip yeah. in the middle that's, right. that's alive. And I love Mark Twain for that. But religion comes along and says, no, wait a minute. After you're dead, then you get judged by this entity. Now, this entity could be Allah. It could be Jehovah. It could be Jesus. You know, any number of religions. They all have got their their uh, shtick there. And you're going to get judged based on how you what you did to your life. And you're going to get burned. You're going to get punished. You're going to put in, you know, in limbo or whatever Catholics have these days. They've now changed that, I know. But, I mean, there's all sorts of bad things that are going to happen to you after you die. And if you look at the, at the imagery and the mythology around after death, most religions are more concerned about after death. 
Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to happen when you die? I mean, the entire, going back to you guys' former religion, Mormonism, look at the in, an incredible, you guys You guys actually have a better afterlife mythology than, than, the, than the Christians do. And I do not consider Mormons Christians, by the way. <laughs> but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah. But look at the mythology you guys have around after death. Yeah. And the horror and the fears mm-hmm. and the separation anxiety. Mm-hmm. Those are those are unnatural. There's no that is building up to keep you infected with the God virus, yeah. the Mormon God virus, Catholic God virus. Well, yeah, and I always felt like I was sort of just living for the afterlife. Exactly. When I was when I was, to, when I was in the right. midst of, of Mormonism, that's all I ever thought yeah, about was right. was first of all, I always thought that Satan was like right here, mm-hmm. like tempting me. Right? No, I'm serious. Like I, he <laughs> no, was he'd be right on the other here. shoulder. That's the yeah. right shoulder, the left shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But no, I, it was a constant just phobia and fear. Absolutely. It is a phobia. Yeah. You're well, right. It's interesting. I watch. You know, most of my wife's family is still Mormon. And I watch them living lives that are clearly miserable. Right. Making choices. No, not always, but but making choices that if they didn't have this this mythology about what's going to happen after they die, there's no way in hell they would choose half the things that they're choosing. Right. right. They choose. They they make purposeful choices, and they and their verbiage. They are willing to say, "I suffer now." Mm. And it's great, and it's fine, because later, after this life, everything's going to be great, and I will have earned my eternal reward. I get my planet. Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Although they don't... Do they ever talk about the planet thing? It's there. It's It's definitely present. They talk less now. Yeah, they really really hide from it. Well, they're trying to look like Christians, is what Mormonism's doing. Sure. As I talk about in my book, The God Virus, religions are always evolving. Mm -hmm. And they've got to evolve to stay with the culture, or the culture will leave them behind. Absolutely. And you see that. Like, just last week, the Mormons come out and said, you can drink caffeinated drinks now, as long Mm -hmm. as they're not coffee or tea. Right. Okay, that's new. (laughs) Well, well, they just never had had made any, they they had never made any official statement about caffeine yet. Yeah, well, tell the poor guy that comes to our recovering from religion and had never had a Dr. Pepper before he left Mormonism because his mother, grandmother told him you were going to hell or whatever yeah, if you drink it. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. I, uh, I, I, when I, um, growing up, my mother, the one thing that we had in the house was, was Dr. Pepper. My mom always had that, but, yeah. but we never felt all that bad about it. Well, maybe yeah. I was wrong. Maybe it should have been Coke, but anyway, well, no, no, it, drink, caffeine yeah. was, it was, it's, it was definitely caffeine, part of the yeah. mythology. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were definitely two camps. My parents never, oh, they didn't. With the whole oh you were from thing. the liberal wing <laughs> <laughs> initially. Yeah. And then they got crazy. Oh, they yeah. did. Yeah. Well, let me take you back to the, to tie the neurosis though, the mm. death neurosis yeah. into sexuality. Cause that's the key. I think that's uh, almost as important as anything else that we're going to talk about today. So, so we've got this person scared to death of dying, right? And, and they've got a phobia of dying, and and they're going to do all they're going to create all these rituals to ensure that they get to the next life. Catholics do it, Muslims do it, Mormons do it. Every religion creates all this crap. But one of the key things is the idea that the God can watch you and knows what your thoughts are. Right. Well, you're not supposed to touch yourself if you're a Mormon, <laughs> and God knows if you touch yourself. So now we've got sex tied to 
neurosis, death neurosis. Right. Yeah. And you're going to go to hell if you touch yourself or if you have sex before marriage, you have sex outside of marriage, or if you have wrong kind of sex while you're married or who you have sex with. I mean, there's all these prohibitions. If there was ever a cruel doctrine that has ever been handed down to anyone in the history of the world, it is to tell a 15-year-old boy <laughs> that he is not allowed to touch his own penis. Yeah. <laughs> it's the worst. I mean, honestly, it... I and I know what you're talking about because believe me, I just rang myself through the ringer every time I I would masturbate and then I would be like, ah no, I'm in trouble and then I'd go back and then I'd like I would resolve myself. I'm never gonna do it again and I would go for a long time and then I'd like build up and build up and build up and then I'd do it and then it would feel amazing and I'd be so happy and then suddenly there's that. Thing in the back of the head, like, oh <laughs> shit, what did I just do? Yeah. Um, I always played hymns. I would oh, practice no. the piano oh, after wow, I would that's masturbate. Funny. So I got really good at the piano. <laughs> what, yeah. One one guy wrote me sometime back, and and he, he had that same uh, same story, Dan. And he said, "It's it's the devil in your balls." <laughs> <laughs> and he's and he said i seriously considered self-castration oh, i mean this guy God. yeah he was now he was he was catholic though he wasn't mm. mormon but wow whoa that's pretty serious yeah that's that's intense but you know there have been catholic serious catholic people there are saints today who did that to themselves right yeah now you talk about sex and 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 neuros these kinds of neuroses as a as a means of uh as of the church do you feel like it's a means of the church of churches controlling their parishioners or do you feel like it's a it where do you think that comes from why why did it arise uh it it rose about 2500 years ago in in religions on the planet um about 2500 years ago a a few religions learned the power of of um, creating guilt around sex and shame around sex if you if you think of it, I call it the guilt cycle in in um, in both my books. And the guilt cycle is fairly simple. You you you're not born guilty about religion. We even know that infants touch themselves while they're still in the womb. Mm. So they're playing with themselves even before they come out of their mom, uh, especially boys. But girls, we know, touch themselves a lot too. It's pleasurable. Why wouldn't they? So uh, what what religion does is teaches you to be paranoid, to be neurotic about something you're going to do anyway. Right. And so you're going to touch yourself. We're going to teach you how terrible that is, and you're going to go to hell, try to scare the crap out of you. And then, of course, every time you're going to do it anyway. I mean, just like you said, you could not do it. Right. So then when you do it, what do you have to do? You have to go get forgiveness. Right. You have to go back to church. And it brings you back to church. Brings you back, But it only brings you back to the church you learned the guilt at in the first place. Oh, that's an interesting point. That's yeah. the beauty of the guilt cycle. You don't go confess your sins to a Catholic priest. And, and the, the Catholics don't confess to Mormon bishops. So right. Yeah, that's always, really interesting. It brings you back where you learned the guilt in the first place. Uh, huh. I, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it is great because, frankly, I don't know if you've ever been to a Mormon church service. I avoid that. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, Sorry. What <laughs> I else could possibly keep someone coming back? It is three fucking hours of nonsense. And it's just like literally if, you, if, if they don't have their hooks in you somehow, no one's going to come to this shit. Yeah, I've heard that. In fact, I've heard it from you guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. How boring it is. It's uh, it's quite remarkable. But there is another aspect to this that that I I 
like to talk about, and that's the concept of shame. Mm. And and what the difference between guilt and shame is. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I don't think we think about this in Western culture, because Western culture, by and large, is more guilt-based. Eastern cultures and Islam are more shame-based. Mormonism is more shame-based. That's interesting. Cults are much more shame-based. Now, you think about guilt as an individual thing. You feel guilty, you know, because you cheated, you know poker game (laughs) (laughs) or you you feel guilty because you stole cookies out of the cookie jar when you were five years old or whatever well that's an individual thing and you go to your god and you pray to your god about that guilt shame is communal shame involves the family involves a community and so you you could be shameful about something that you're not even guilty about you didn't do for example a woman in um a woman in iraq that gets raped she has nothing to be guilty about. It wasn't her fault. And yet she will feel enormous shame because that culture shames sexual contact of any kind, even rape. Mm, and it's her right. fault. Yeah. And they, they shame women into believing all sexual contact, all sexual behavior is the fault of the woman. Well, early Judaism did the same thing. Many parts of Judaism still do. And almost all the other Christian religions to some degree do. It's a good trick. I really need to learn to figure out how to... How to make everything that happens in my home my wife's fault. It'll, just, it will, it'll make my life so much easier if I can just figure out how to make everything her fault, and, and even if it's, my, if it's my stupidity, which it always is. Oh, so I see. That might be useful. That, that's a good trick. <laughs> well, when a shame culture, a shame religion is profoundly uh, impactful on its members, mm. and it's, it's very difficult to leave. Because everybody is connected through shame, uh, and whatever you whatever you do can be uh, brought back. The, the entire community will come down on you right. based upon what you did. I mean, just look at how Mormonism works. Somebody does something wrong or contravenes one of the principles, the whole community. You have to go before a bishop and tell him, and it's always him, of course, Tell him if you've touched yourself or if you've had sex outside marriage, you're confessing big, big time stuff. Right. Now, Catholicism used to be much more shame based, too. But but it's not been able to maintain that shame because you also have to have a very tight community and a very tight family structure in order to have a shame based religion. Right. That's why Mormonism is so family focused so it can maintain the shame focus. You let it get beyond beyond the family focus, and the shame goes down. Now, the guilt may come up, but the shame goes down. Look at, look at Mormonism in outlying areas. Look at Mormonism in where I'm from, in Kansas or, or Massachusetts, where Mitt Romney's from. It's a much more low-key, much less shame-based because you don't right. have entire communities close together to sanctioning people. It's amazing to watch, actually. When you see Mormonism at its... At its peak, at its finest. Finest is the wrong word, obviously. But it, what's amazing is that, like, even if someone just doesn't go to church for a couple weeks in a row, uh-huh. the entire community notices, and people are calling. They're not. They're not expressly trying to shame them, but they're calling. Hey, where are you? Where, we missed you at church. Where were you? And mm-hmm. it, there's this whole. It. It. This, this shame that you're talking about is actually insidious because they don't actually couch it in shame terms. It's pretty it's pretty impressive that how they can get 
all these nice shame messages, all these nice messages about like you're breaking from the community, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but they couch it in this you know love loving. terms. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, loving, right? You don't have to use the word shame to shame somebody. Right? <laughs> it's very subtle. It's probably less effective, actually. Actually, less effective. You're right. It's those underlying subliminal messages. Yeah. That are so powerful in people. Yeah. That's huh. amazing. So I think this is a very important distinction between guilt and shame. Baptists are guilt. Baptists are Presbyterian. You know, those kind of religions are more guilt-based. Now, guilt can be pretty insidious too, and I don't have a whole lot of use for guilt. Right. But shame is shame is very insidious because it involves the entire community, and it takes the individual's will away from them. Mm. I can't choose to leave Mormonism without a huge consequence to my life. Right. That's what happens in Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh Day Adventists and Pentecostal churches. You don't just get up and walk out. No. Now, if you're a Methodist, yeah, you can get up and walk out. <laughs> you're right. Exactly. Nobody's going to shame you for right. leaving the Methodist church. No one's going to tell you the for instance, like the Mormons do, that you are now ruining their eternal family. Precisely. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah. Which is pretty so, good. That's I hope a pretty good list- line, right, by the way. If you want to shame somebody, yeah. tell them that you're ruining their whole life for eternity. Eternity. That's right. a, that's a yeah. good one. <laughs> so I hope your listeners really grasp onto that mm-hmm. distinction between shame and guilt and apply it to who more importantly to apply it to themselves right how they were raised were they raised in a guilt-based religion or a shame-based religion now all religions do both don't right. get me wrong but they do different levels of both sure well i i hope that they don't fully grasp it so that they have to go out and buy your book well i do too That's <laughs> where, where can everybody buy your book by the way amazon.com or if they go to ipcpress.com i sign every copy that goes comes through that website oh okay yeah. cool yeah. And uh, both the God virus and uh, sex and God are you know on, on both sites. I'm definitely both worth checking out. Um, and there were a couple of other things that, that I wanted to ask you about. You've got oh, tell me about recovering from religion. Well, it's an organization I started three years ago um, to help people. Our motto is there are thousands of groups that will get you into religion. We're the only ones that will get you out <laughs> or, or help you get out, rather. It's the Underground Railroad. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and uh, I started three years ago. I worked on it a couple of years, and, you know, I'm not – I didn't get very far. I got about 20 groups started around the United States. And these are groups that meet once a month and talk about the issues of coming out of religion. I turned it over to Jerry DeWitt and Sarah Moorhead um, not quite a year ago, and now we have 150 groups around the world. Wow. They're doing a super job, man. We just got our uh, – last Friday, I'm happy to announce we are now a 501c3 nonprofit. Great. And we wow. can take donations, folks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we have been doing this on a shoestring budget. And by shoestring, I mean it comes out of my back pocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Jerry's and Sarah's. So uh, we are now trying – we're now getting ready to uh, – you know, we're opening up, and we want to take donations. Because our mission is to help people deal with the trauma of leaving religion. Right. So we have these meetings, and uh, you'll get an ex-Mormon, you get an ex-Baptist, an ex-Catholic, an ex-Pentecostal. We even had ex-Moonies in our, our, our groups. Wow. And they'll sit around the table for an hour or two. Actually, they schedule it for an hour, and a lot of times three hours later they're leaving. I mean, it's amazing. We ask people, just tell us your story. And pretty soon the Catholic says, crap, that's exactly what happened to me, and you were a Mormon. Right. Or Mormon says, wow, that's what happened to me, and you were a Pentecostal. And they realize the light bulb comes on. They say, 
All religions are playing the same game with you, the same brainwashing techniques. Mm. It's a, and it doesn't take more than a few of those meetings to, for people to pretty much leave the guilt behind, leave the shame behind, and, and start reconstructing their lives. Yeah, it sounds like something that, that could be really helpful. I know a lot of our listeners have, have written to us and, and let us know that they've, they, you know, they don't feel like they have a safe place to go and talk right. about these issues. They've, you know, their whole family structure, all of their friends are still in the religion, and so it, it ends up being this very difficult thing for them to find. So I, I can see that that would be truly a, like a remarkably helpful thing yeah have your listeners go to recoveringfromreligion.org and we have a forum there for people to c- compare notes we've got all sorts of materials to support people if they want to start a group in their own area we've got that we just our our most recent group started in london just last week oh that's great we have groups in bangladesh and in india and all over canada in australia we're even we're even having uh we've even appointed um, national coordinators. Now we've got national coordinators in Australia and national coordinators in in the United Kingdom, to because we're building more groups in all these other countries. That's fantastic. It's it's a it's fun to be involved and in this so program. needed. I I, I really uh, I really approve of that work. So well done you and 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 all of our wealthy listeners can uh, can go there and now us, donate to you. Yeah right. Hooray. And it'll go to a great cause because uh, we have just gotten started we've Mm. we've got so much to do so many uh programs we want to try and and fund and 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 raise awareness of what we're trying to do and get more groups started it takes time it takes some money to do that and uh, also, you, now, so you 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 were a clinical therapist for a long time, right? Yeah, I was time, a clinical right? psychologist, and, right. and there's also, so you've also started a, a thing called the uh, Secular Therapist Project? Yeah, Is just that? earlier this year. Um, and tell me about that. Well, uh, it's actually a sub-part of recovering from religion, although okay. it's kind of a, often on its own little piece. Right. Han Hills and I, out of North Carolina, he's the web developer for it. What we found, I found people always emailing me and say, I need a, I need a therapist for X, Y, or Z. I'm depressed, or I want to go through divorce counseling, something. And I, and they'll say, I can't find anybody. They're all Christian counselors. They're all Christian <laughs> psychologists. And of course, I think it's well, an oxymoron. People don't want to go to Mar- Marcus Bachman's uh, yeah, right. group and <laughs> see the gay away. get some help there. <laughs> well, it's really crazy because... I mean, you think about it. If somebody says they're a Christian counselor, they've lopped off an entire area of inquiry, and that's your delusions. Right. Yeah, deluded people need to look at their delusions. And so Christian counselors aren't qualified in my book to do that very well. I'm not saying there aren't some that can't and don't, but I know a lot that don't. So they're, they can't find one. And here's the other problem. On the other side, if I'm a psychologist in Salt Lake City and I raise my hand and I say I'm an atheist psychologist, half my clients will leave. Oh, yeah. And the church will stop referring people to me. There's I'll a stigma my, that, that gets attached right, to it. Right, right. Yeah. So, so we created this website. It's kind of like a dating site, eHarmony or Match.com. And you, you can come through our system as a therapist. You can register a therapist anonymously, but your qualifications are out there, and you're vetted by us. We know you're qualified. You aren't a charlatan. Right. And we also know you're, you're a secularist. You're an athe- agnostic, an atheist, a humanist. You can still be um, religious. We don't mind that as long as you keep the religion low-key and out of your practice. Uh, and then if you're if I'm a therapist client, I can get on and register, put my zip code in, and it'll say, oh, I got Dan and Frank within 10 miles of my house, and I could go, and I'm guaranteed you are secular. 
I email you through our system. So nobody's email, nobody's phone number, nobody knows anything until you make a decision to actually make an appointment. And then I show up at your office. That's great. Incidentally, by the way, if you see Dan or Frank come up on that, don't go to us. <laughs> We'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but it's seculartherapy.org. Great. Yeah, it's got its own website. Yeah, I'm sure that that'll be seculartherapy.org. Very handy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and we want, if you're a therapist out there in listener land, register with us. If you're a secular therapist. Well, I know I'm going to tell my therapist about it because my yes. therapist is uh, secular and he's brilliant and Excellent. more people need to find him. So Perfect. I think that that'll be great. And we've gotten a large number of referrals from people like you saying, great. I want my, telling your therapist. Yeah. If you're looking for a therapist, go first to our site. Can't guarantee there'll be anybody in your area, but go there first. It's a good and, place to start. Well, you can also do phone therapy. Oh, a lot wow. of our therapists, I would say about a half of our therapists will do Skype or phone therapy. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's which is great. a growing area. Yeah. Oh. Fantastic. I know that. Well, thank you so much for coming out here. I mean, what a treat it is. We don't do hardly any interviews so yeah we need to do more of these yeah i know it's kind of fun (laughs) (laughs) onus isn't on us to talk the whole time we got somebody else talking it's great (laughs) and if i screw up you got somebody to blame (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i think if there's a screw up it has to be on this end i think the interviewer is always the problem always responsible yeah so well anyway Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you, Daryl. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. So and again, keep up the good work. If you uh, if you want to buy any of Dr. Ray's uh, books, you can go to Amazon.com um, and look for him speaking at some crazy sex conference in your neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, hopefully, you'll be, you'll be lucky enough to see it because I'm looking forward to it. I should say that the book is on you know hard copy. It's also on Kindle, and it soon will be on audiobook. We're there hoping to have go. that out in the next couple months. Fantastic audiobooks. So. All right, cool, great. All right, well, uh, I, thanks again. Our next interview is a short interview that I did with the Bishop of London when I was there a few years back. He is the third in command in the Church of England uh, in their uh, hierarchy. It's the Bishop of Canterbury. And then I think York and then London. So he's a, he's a big wig uh, in the funny hat community there and uh, had this to say. I guess, first of all, I, I don't know what to call you. I know that you're the Bishop of London. Yes, Bishop Richard. And Bishop Richard is what you prefer to be called? Yes. Okay. Um, For Utah, because uh, my actual title is unusable, really, in Utah. <laughs> Which is what? My Lord Bishop. Ah. Indeed. So, I guess since I have so little time with you, and, I, and I'd like to avoid staying as surface as we can, uh, I guess my, my question for you is, and this, is, this would be what would most be on the minds of, of my listeners, well, I, there are a couple things that I want to ask, but I guess I'll ask, what... How do you, what's important about how you liaise with the non-believing part of, of, of society? And, and, and where do you feel the intersections are, are between the, the believers and the non-believers now? I think that's a very important question. Here, of course, um, the situation in England is that the Church of England is not really a membership organization. We're not interested only in our gang and getting recruits to our gang. The classical idea is that if you're vicar of a parish, 
you're the vicar for everybody who lives there. I myself opened a mosque, of course, when I was uh, bishop in the East End in the poorest part of London, because um, the Muslims thought that, well, I, I was their bishop, really, and uh, on their side. So I hope that uh, that which is in our DNA is uh, our fundamental attitude. We are interested, obviously, um, in a society that is united in uh, pursuing the spiritual evolution of human beings. And uh, there is a vast range of causes and uh, responsibilities with which um, we can share uh, an interest and common cause with uh, any number of citizens. So that's where we start with, with our unity there. And I think that um, especially with people in this very cosmopolitan city, because uh, London must be among the most cosmopolitan cities in the world, uh, relations with people of other faiths and people of goodwill, that uh, is a very major part of the job. And I have myself established um, a centre in a church that was blown up by a terrorist bomb in Bishopsgate here in the city of London, St. Ethelberger's Church, which is explicitly uh, related to the search for reconciliation and peace and uh, is seen as a home for people of all faiths and people of goodwill who have no faith. Oh, that's wonderful. Do you feel that more and more, or do you, do you, do you mourn that, it, it, sorry, it occurs to me, and I'm not going to, I shouldn't take it for granted, that the church seems to be losing uh, traditional parishioners. Do, do you mourn that? Well, I'm not a salesman for God, you see. Um, I think that um, religion is exposed to many, many dangers. And, of course, this is uh, obviously true from the history of all religious traditions, that what is so easy is for us to invent a god, to make a god in our own image, to project various unacknowledged parts of ourselves, at best our best thoughts and at worst some of the shadow side, some of the anger, to project that into the middle distance, to call that god and engage with, with that uh, projection of ourselves. And that's what all the prophets call idolatry, and it is extremely dangerous. And so one must be very alert to that and very alert to um, a sense that it all depends on my management and my salesmanship, um, uh, or I'll, otherwise the cause will go down. Uh, there are some very good reasons why people don't believe in the God who underwrote absolutist regimes, in whose name the will of the one extinguished the will of the many. There are very good reasons why... Uh, that God uh, has become increasingly incredible in Europe. But I would say that in this country um, there is um, a um, turn of the tide. Um, we were perhaps as a church too much at home in Churchill's Britain. We were disoriented by the vast social revolution of the 1960s, but in this diocese, the church is growing, and I think it's growing in a very healthy way. Um, I, of course, go around like uh, one of our politicians uh, of yesteryear 
very famously said, I go around stirring up apathy wherever I can, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going around battering people over the head, but I'm just overwhelmed at the moment by the number of doors that stand open, the real perturbation uh, in a society which only the day before yesterday, 20 years ago, we sit here in 2012, and I remember 1992 because I was consecrated bishop in the poorest part of London in 1992, and almost at the same time, Francis Fukuyama, whom you'll remember, um, and I'm glad to say who still lives and dines a prosperous gentleman, he published a book um, suggesting that we were within sight, really, of building heaven on earth, without God, of course, but with the assistance of liberal democracy and market economics. And he wrote his great book, The End of History. Well, I think 20 years later, that looks less and less plausible. <laughs> history moves on. And uh, I think after a period when people began to quit um, a religious practice that uh, was underwritten by social approval um, and perhaps to lose faith in a God it's uh, really good to lose faith in, the God who underwrites absolutism and the will of the one against the will of the many, we are now in a situation where I think incumbency is very much, um, very much belongs to the uh, Anglo-American elite who believed until comparatively recently that the story of God would only have one end. Mm. He would be sent to the margins, to the leisure sector, to be the harmless hobby, although, of course, I realize that in American context it isn't always so harmless, the harmless hobby of those who have antiquarian interests. That's not how it looks now, because I think um, as the tectonic plate shift, as the prestige of Western ideas is challenged um, by the enormous uh, crisis through which we are passing and from which we have not yet emerged, I think that people's minds are open to other realities now in a way perhaps they haven't been for most of my ordained life. So I see this as a time of um, great, uh, well, from my point of view, um, great and dangerous opportunity because this century... And uh, I want really to think London, think Christian, rather than thinking my denomination and think the world, think spiritual. I think this is a century of enormous promise, but enormous peril. Uh, and uh, they are well balanced. Uh, there are extraordinary forces at work that could tear our world to pieces. And so I simply look around for allies in a common struggle and I find those allies very frequently among spiritually alert people who couldn't possibly subscribe to the faith um, which I represent and in which I believe it's fascinating that's wonderful I guess okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one more question and and then I promise I'll I'll let you go I almost, I'm, it's, it's almost scary to ask this. What, what if there is no God? For you, what if there is no God? Well, all I can say is that um, it would um, falsify um, the energy that I experience. It would uh, falsify 
the, the glory, the beauty. And so I simply cannot imagine that in this world of such beauty and promise as well as such uh, frustration and such pain, uh, I cannot imagine a situation in which um, God was not real. That, of course, is not to say that um, I um, am in a position to um, second-guess the thoughts of God, still less to set myself up in the place of God. And I'll end with something which has always resonated with me, which is something the poet Rilke said. Rilke said about God this, you have such a quiet manner of existence that those who name you with a loud insistence show they've forgotten your proximity. Bishop, thank you so much. Great to see you, Dan. Great to see you. And um, happy travels. And, thank uh, you. Safe journey back to Utah. I wanted to end the show today with uh, the wise words of one of the most uh, smartest guys I know. Uh, and that's Paige Palmer, a former therapist of mine and uh, all-around brilliant feller who I uh, I thought had some lovely things to say when we had him on the show. We'll try and have him on the show again sometime soon. Uh, so here's that. Well, and then, of course, we have some other email that we wanted to um, get to. And to yeah. help us with that, uh, we have Paige Palmer. That's right. Um, we do. Here today with us. Hi. So thank you for... Uh, for, for giving us a little bit of your time. Yeah, happy um, to. Dan, do you want to introduce Paige? Paige is a, uh, a local therapist. Uh, wh- what would you say? A I'm a psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. That's good. You know, if you rearrange the spaces, you can get psycho the rapist yes, out of yes, that. Yes, <laughs> oh. Or anal rapist, depending on your, oh, yes. your <laughs> historical background. Uh, yes, indeed. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, So... so uh, you and I go a ways back because you were my psychotherapist. Uh-huh. So that's how we know him. But, oh, okay. And that's also how I know how brilliant you are. Oh, I got it. Oh, wow. You. So we, we, we brought you in here because what because Frank and I go on and on about a lot of stuff, and we don't necessarily yeah, know what we're, we're talking about. We have no clue. Right? <laughs> like, you know, you can get paid for that. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, we're, okay. We're working on it. <laughs> But uh, what we're doing, uh, we, w- we have had a lot of uh, listeners write to us about coming out as atheists, uh, mm-hmm. as Frank and I have both experienced. Yeah. Uh, coming out can be a traumatic and terrifying moment uh, when, when, when you have, especially when you have family and mm-hmm. loved ones mm-hmm. who are uh, who who are religious and and mm-hmm. identify you know, you know, their, their whole identity re- revolves around that religion. So I'm going to read a couple of, of, uh, emails, uh, that we got a while back. We've been saving them up for you. Great. <laughs> um, we got one from Raymond who, uh, who said that, um, uh, I'll just read it. Uh, I'm an atheist with two kids from different mothers. Uh, an oldest son is Catholic. His youngest son is Jewish. My older son is gay, so I participated in his coming out process as a parent. My wife and I tried to make it as easy as possible on him. He has not come out to his maternal grandmother, mostly because she has told him that gays should be put to death. Uh, So he and he says, my wife knew I was an atheist when we married 22 years ago. I've always let my kids know what my views are. 
Um, his oldest son went to Catholic school. Anyway, I, the reason I read that is because we have made a correlation um, between coming out as gay mm-hmm. and coming out as atheist. It mm-hmm. seems like there's a lot of, of, yeah, of well, crossover. Right, exactly. I'm As a gay man, I see the... Ex- and, and an atheist, I, I see uh-huh. that the experience has been very similar for me. Absolutely. So this, this desire to... Um, I don't know. What is it? The, the, you're, you're trying, you don't want to risk these relationships that you have um, or the perception that people have of you. And, and so, like, how does that, how, how does living closeted, I guess, what, what kind of toll can living closeted really take on someone? Is there a danger there? Yeah. Or, is, I mean, is it fine to live in a, in a closet? What, what would your opinion on that be? Well, you know, I make my living as a psychotherapist, and so a big part of that process is coming out as who you are. Hmm. Hmm. So at any level, being known is really what all this is about, is whether, it? whether it's to be gay or to be a Mormon or to be an atheist. It really is about being known, and if you hmm. think about it, not being known is incredibly lonely, hmm. and it's, uh, it's worse with the people that you love. Right. So to never be known by the people that you love is an incredible stress. And so it's going to create all kinds of problems for you. Hmm. I mean, anybody can speak to um, the stress of trying to fake it and to try to pass. Hmm. So, you know, that's one of the things that we carry until we're known. And then once you're known, it may or may not get better. <laughs> well, that's encouraging. Yeah, I, I'm really here to cheer you up. I mean, the, the truth is, being known is not a guarantee that you're going to be loved or valued or respected or regarded mm-hmm. in any in any uh, positive way. And that uh, that actually leads to something that I've kind of been wrestling with, which is we're taking this soapbox of you know, come out, come out. It's so important to to atheism in general and to a- other atheists that there's more visibility. But at the same time, I'm, I wrestle with this idea that we might be giving people advice that's actually not going to lead to happiness, that, that well, could actually lead to being kind of in a bad spot for a while. Well, absolutely. And if you think about it, if you're underage, you're living in a household with uh, people who are very devout believers, uh, perhaps fundamentalist in their worldview. They're not going to welcome you, right. uh, your, your disbelief in their way of thinking. And you may want to wait. Mm. I mean, the truth is, is that could be a, a pretty poor outcome, and you may want to wait. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has to come out when they have this notion that there is no God. Right. Um, I think you have a right to pick your time and your place, and mm-hmm. it needs to show some discretion and some awareness of the circumstances you're in. Mm. If you're a minor, you may want to weigh that question pretty carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pressures that can ensue uh, can be pretty broad and pretty intense. Yeah. Um, you know, you can be swept away to, you know, Bible camp mm-hmm. and be rehabilitated. And right. uh, those are painful experiences. You may want to wait till you're, you're more on your own. Mm. And, you know, as an adult, it starts to be a little bit different though. Right. If you have resources, um, you know, you know, you're not gonna be thrown out on the street. That's a little bit different paradigm. And there's plenty of kids who, whether they come out as gay or whether they come out as atheist, they're on the street. That right. actually does happen. Right. So, Part of what you want to take a look at is, is, is this the time and the place uh, for you? And really what your motives are in coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there can be a lot of disadvantages if you're young. There can be disadvantages if you're married to a, a believer. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, when, when someone, well, I mean, I, that, it's obvious 
I, I feel like it's obvious that if you are a believer and or if, if you start a marriage as two believers and then one person falls away from that, uh, it seems like that's a very likely to create a very sticky situation. Is there how, how do you navigate that? Well, you, you have to be known if you're going to be able to ever have any intimacy. Mm. I mean, intimacy is the ability to go inside, identify who you are, and then bring that into a relationship and share who you are. Sure. The loneliest we're going to be is in a loving relationship where we're not known. And I don't mm. even know how you can have a loving relationship where you're not alone. So mm. part of what you got to take a look at is if, if this is where I'm at and this is the path I'm on. Is there any way to intimacy and being known without revealing myself to my significant others? Hmm. I don't know a way to do that. Hmm. It's tricky. So to fake your way through a marriage as a believer, as many, many do, is a little bit like faking your way through a culture as a believer, as many, many do. There's a lot more non-believers out there than anybody cares to admit. We're a pretty big club. Right. Hmm. So being known is... Uh, one of the ways to reduce loneliness, but it doesn't guarantee you acceptance. Right. Um, if it guaranteed you acceptance, everybody would be coming out all the time <laughs> as exactly what they are. And right. I don't know what you see, but when I look around the world, I see people hiding a lot. Mm-hmm. Because it's a safe way to go. Except it's not. Because you have that bind of never being known, living in the stress of being very separate and lonely. So the way out of that is to hold on to yourself and step into relationship. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think you got to decide when and where. Right. Um, I don't think I would come out in the social media. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, not, not let the, the most intimate people in your life know by the same way you let the least intimate people in your life know. Exactly, because they're going to feel completely disrespected. And so you want to ask, okay, who do, I, who do I come out to as an atheist um, first? And that's probably going to be to a friend. I don't know about you, but my own experience was coming out really to people that I trusted, mm. who, who I thought could handle the information, mm-hmm. where I could test myself and reveal myself a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the way we do it. Um, but well, Frank, you, you and I are geniuses. This is <laughs> we've we've said that. You I, feel really, I feel really smart now. Yeah, I think you're doing well. Yeah, I think you're doing great. Uh, uh, you you want to test the water a bit, though. I yeah. Mean, yeah. First of all, you got to figure out how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are the words that are going to come for you? Right. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't believe in supernatural explanations for natural things. Sure. That's one way of saying it. Another way is uh, I'm an atheist, and that's almost like a club. Yeah. You know, right. you're yeah. kind of battering people with. Uh, people don't receive that nearly as kindly. What language do you want to use? Right. What's most true for you? But in the final analysis, you're going to begin with somebody that you have some faith in, I hope. I hope mm. you don't begin on the social media. Uh, you begin with those significant relationships where there's a high level of trust, where the costs are low, and the probabilities of being accepted are high. And then you have to move to significant others and in really important relationships where there could be losses. Yeah. Right. But at least you go into it with a little bit of practice, a sense that oh, it might be possible for me to be accepted. Hmm. Right. Yeah. But then, of course, you risk rejection. Absolutely. Is there? Is there... I mean, I, I, the, I, there's no way to avoid. If the rejection's going to happen, it's going to happen. Is it, would, would you agree with that? I mean, it, I know that. Although, well, I mean, is there a way to prepare yourself? Yeah. For, for, for there you go. For, That's a smart question for, for that level of risk. 
Yeah, well, I think part of what you're, you're doing is you're recognizing what your goal is. Mm. Is your goal to be known? Mm-hmm. Is it to be accepted? Is it to be approved of? Mm. Is it to be valued? I mean, really, what are you going into this for? Some people are going into it to batter their uh, relatives who have, they felt oppressed by. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think that motive is going to be very peaceful. Right. Um, my goal uh, is always to be able to reach in and identify who I am and then move towards people in a relationship. Mm. And part of that is my goal is to be known. Mm. And so when you're coming out, you're going to risk not being accepted. But if your goal is to be known, and that's more important to you than to be accepted, hmm. you're probably on the right path. Hmm. And you can always ask for acceptance, even though you're not asking for agreement. Hmm. Right. I mean, agreements and acceptance are pretty hard to distinguish for some folks. Sure. They can't accept you if they don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to really work with that and yeah. that message is going to have to be very moderate and you may re- have to have a lot of conversations before you get there i don't think this is a one conversation experience no i, in agree. Fact, I was just thinking about that i mean especially with like some you know, you know any number of parents out there who are believers um it seems like to me that this could be a conversation that goes on for years absolutely uh, maybe the rest of your life with that in that relationship. You know, I'm going to jump in here because we had an email from Michelle. And one of the things that she said, she had a, it was a lovely email. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it was a little, it's a, just a little too long to be on the air, but it was great. Thanks, Michelle. Um, one of the th- things she talked about, though, her, she is, she has come out to her parents as being uh, an atheist, but uh, she has children and eventually. She's going. Her parents are going to have to come to terms with the fact that she's not going to baptize her children. Right. Uh, that's a tricky one. That's hard to hide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when 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 it's when it's a third party involved, when it's not me and my parent, but it's me, my parent, and my child, mm. that ends up being a, 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 a an even stickier situation. A parent doesn't have to just accept my atheism but the fact that my kids are not going to join their club that's a tricky one well it's and it can be such a major loss i mean we we have people who have multiple generations in their religious tradition um mm. they feel a tremendous investment in it. they absolutely love and adore you they want the best for you not just now but for eternity mm-hmm. and their notion is that is best served by being a true believer mm-hmm. so they're experiencing loss mm-hmm. i mean you may be wanting to be known but they're experiencing a major loss, and that doesn't just exist for here. They imagine it existing for eternity. Mormons right. believe they're going to be families forever unless there's transgression or there's disbelief or leaving the faith. So these losses are enormous that we're creating for the people around us. Yeah. They had a notion, a dream of who you were supposed to be. Yeah. That's not who you are. Indeed. And so part of this mm-hmm. is about coming to terms with the fact that it's not my job to fulfill your dream of who I am for you. My job is to be me and to be known and to share that. Otherwise, I can't live in integrity. Mm-hmm. I mean, strangely, what we're really talking about here is how to live with integrity hmm. so that we're transparent, we can be seen, we can be known, we can be experienced as who we are, not as a pretension. Hmm. And so for those of us who struggle with uh, a different position, uh, you know, intellectually, uh, spiritually, uh, sexually, you know, what we're really wrestling with is do we have the integrity, the gumption to live straight up and to be known and to let people vote? Mm-hmm. 
That's interesting. It's not really my job to decide whether you accept me. Right. That's all up to you. The question is, can I embrace myself? Can I reach deep down, get a sense of who I am, and share that with you, and let you make your own call? I think one of the things that's really fascinating about all of this is that many people who leave a a religion— now, this wasn't my this wasn't my experience, but I know a lot of people who leave a religion are hurt by that religion. Have been are angry that they were duped or that they were part mm-hmm. of of something that 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 has taken a lot from them and not given them what was promised. And then they have to go into this situation where they have to go to their family and almost take care of their family. If they want to navigate this well, you have to show compassion for what your family's going through, even though you're already going through something really intense yourself. Absolutely. It's a tricky one. Yeah, there's no easy way through that, is there? <laughs> Doesn't seem like it. And that's why I don't think it should be one conversation. Mm. I mean, this might be years that you're really looking at. You can come out, you can share who you are. Not asking even immediately for acceptance, but for at least the experience of being with your family is who you are. Mm. I mean, I don't know what your experience was coming out gay, but when you had somebody fully embrace you from your family system who maybe struggled earlier, that's an enormous victory, I think, over Mm. time when you come to navigate those waters and move into deeper relationship. Only now it's, this is who I am, Mm -hmm. and you're having a relationship with that. Um, Mm -hmm. But that comes through doing the conflict, and for a while... That's going to get very strained, and there is a fair amount of caretaking involved in it, I think, sometimes. And I think you have to decide, what's my goal here in a first conversation? Mm. You know, knowing yeah. that this could go on for years yeah. and years. It's hmm. really interesting. I know a lot of people there, we've, had, we've actually had listeners write in and say, you know, I think I, we had one listener uh, write us an email and say, this is what I wrote to my dad. Do you think it's too harsh? So should I send it? And I just think, you know, to to my mind, he said, but, you know, he's he's been rough with me. He deserves it. Mm-hmm. And I just think to myself, you know, do you, I think it's what you say. What's your goal? Right. Do you mm-hmm. want do you want to win or do you want a more peaceful, open, loving relationship with your father? Right. Well, and, and part of that is, is your goal to be known? Mm. Is it to get even? Um. Is it good even with all those people who you felt bad about within in church? Mm-hmm. I mean, are you trying to rectify a whole bunch of wrongs because you're not going to succeed? <laughs> um, or is it just to be known? Because that's, that's really living with integrity. You pull yourself together and you share who you are, and then people get to vote. They're going to vote anyway. Mm-hmm. But now they get to vote on who you actually are. Mm. Right. So there's an opportunity to come together, move your life forward as who you are. And there will be losses. Yeah. Not everybody's going to accept you, and you know, it it speaks to the, also some of the other issues. You know, once you get beyond your significant other and maybe your parents, you know, you come out of work. Mm. For some people, that's a disaster. Yeah, that's the end of their livelihood. Yeah, uh, they're going to have to make occupational changes. Well, is that a bad thing? Mm. That's true. I mean, I mean, what? <laughs> it's a trade-off, right? You you can choose Absolutely. to be at work and not be you. Mm-hmm. And not ha- not have the opportunity to live with that integrity, mm-hmm. or you can choose to find something else to do f- for your money, where you can be yourself. And that's that's a decision for an individual to make. Right. Stay inside of a system 
And some people stay inside the system hoping to alter the system. Mm-hmm. By the very presence, they can begin to have conversations, and it's a little bit of insurrection from within, maybe. You know, they start to uh, have a dialogue. Sure. Um, and in that dialogue, sometimes change can occur. And so sometimes you can be an advocate for change not coming out on the inside, but in pretty intelligent, appropriate ways, and preserve your livelihood, mm. preserve your connections culturally and maybe socially. That's a, a reasonable position to take, I think. Yeah. It wouldn't work for me. <laughs> Indeed. But, but I wouldn't doubt it for somebody else. I think the uh, the motive question comes in. Are you trying to live a life worth living for yourself? How much caretaking you do of others? Are you trying to right wrongs? You know, are you trying to, you know, get even in some way? You've got to really look at your motives for coming out at all. If it's to be known, you only have one pathway forward. Mm-hmm. It's about revealing who you are and letting people vote. They're going to anyway. This notion that we can preserve everything is foolishness. You're going to lose something somewhere. Is mm-hmm. it going to be you? Is it going to be some relationship? You can't have everything, so you start to choose what you want based on your values. And when you're living in integrity with your values, you know, you're going to have an interesting life. (laughs) It may or may not be peaceful, but, you know, hundreds of years in Switzerland gave us Swiss cheese. In Italy, you know, hundreds of years of conflict gave us the Renaissance. So I like the Renaissance. Yeah. But a lot of people like cheese. (laughs) Can can I have both the Renaissance and cheese? You know, they they serve cheese in Italy. (laughs) It's pretty good. Maybe you can have both, but uh, I don't know how to really get the Renaissance without conflict. Right. Maybe you can get cheese peacefully. I like conflict. I I think it yields uh, something richer, whether it's in music. I mean... I think the best music in this country came out of the 60s. Mm. There's a lot of conflict in that music. So good times really create good art, or bad times oftentimes create really great art. Indeed. Mm. So in your life, I think part of it is about embracing the fact that I'm going to be in conflict if I'm known, but my life has at least the potential to be a work of art that I can respect. I want to make a differentiation here, because when I hear uh, about living being okay with being comfortable with conflict and, and embracing conflict as, as part of creating an, an interesting and fulfilling life. Part of what I'm flashing on is something, for instance, Frank and I have been uh, outspoken against some of the messaging that comes out of the uh, atheist movement, which seems to be very driven at conflict for conflict's sake right? absolutely it's and, pretty yeah. aggressive isn't it yeah it's very aggressive and it seems to me it seems to us we we've decided that at least in large part it can be uh destructive to the overall message and destructive to uh to relations between believers and non-believers yeah i think being the rush limbaugh of atheism is a poor position to take <laughs> it seems like yeah so so the conflict that you're talking about is the conflict that will naturally arise no matter how gently you go into this this if you're gentle if you're respectful you're still going to encounter conflict right um you can be respectful you can be engaged the question is are you going to be intelligently engaged or are you just fighting for the sake of a position mm-hmm. you know uh limbaugh's great for that he takes a position then he just advocates no matter what he thinks personally i suspect he does it for a lot of motives, and I think right. you've got to take a look. Are you in this to deepen relationships and connection? Are you here to further dialogue? I mean, you want to have great conversations. That's very different than beating somebody over the head with what you believe about their religious practice. There's, right. just, there's no relationship in that. It's just abuse. Hmm. Wow. 
All right. I, th- I think that's all the time that, 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 we, ha- that and, we have today. And, with and, you, as, so. much, and as much uh, as I can process in one, <laughs> in one setting, this was great. Well, maybe another yeah. day. Yeah. Thank you, Paige. Yeah, yeah thank you. So. It was fun. And on that note, I think we'll end the show. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, if you have anything that you want to say to us, please feel free to write in to us. Our email address is podcast at thankgodimatheist.com. You can also call in and uh, let your voice be heard. Our voicemail is uh, 424-666-TGIA. So that's 424 666 uh, eight four four two. I think so. Uh, anyway, uh, also you can uh, go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash TGI Atheist, uh, or try to find the, the, the TGIA members only lounge. You just search that in Facebook, and that's the closed group that's so secret that nobody knows about it except all of you. Uh, and I will let you in, just ask to be a member. Uh, thanks so much to Mackenzie for managing our Facebook page, and thanks to the Red Rock Hot Club for the use of their brilliant music, and thanks to our guests over the years uh, whose voices uh, are much smarter than mine. And thank you, dear listener, for all of your kindness uh, in lending your ears. We sure appreciate you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.